You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Acts chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king and Bernice, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody, 
for the decision of the emperor. I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with, it, with us, you see this man with whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Thanks, Joe. That was wonderful reading. Um, it's a long text, so really thankful for um, Joe who <laughs> read it so well. Good morning, church. My name is Caleb, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as you all have seen earlier, we had the baby dedications, and that was wonderful, wasn't it? Uh, to see the little kids, and as Jacob put it so nicely, the help that the parents need. Yeah, kids are like running around and just trying to um, just... Uh, be there for that moment was already so challenging. This morning, I actually went to the crash at first service to take a look. Perhaps trying to find some peace, or maybe not. <laughs> and when I went in, so the title of the sermon today is Whose Interests Are We Advancing? And when I went in, it really spoke to me, right? There you see the little kids and us human beings, right, at the base level. And whose interests are they advancing? Everyone's just wanting their own interests to be advanced. <laughs> but it was wonderful. It was wonderful to see them and just be energized. And I think we really have to thank the volunteers who spend their time and effort and energies just taking care and loving those kids. Now, we're in the middle of that series in Acts. And today, we, we see a clearer glimpse of God making that um, way or opening that way for Paul to get to Rome. We see that has been coming through and now we see it coming to fruition almost. And in this way, in the text today, we see Paul, we see Festus, we see the Jews communicating, talking, and, and God working out in each of them his plans um, to make this happen. Now, the question I want us to have in our minds today as we think about this text is whose interests are each of these individuals having or putting in mind or advancing as they think about this. And consequently, as we think about that, think about whose interests are we advancing in our lives. Let's take some time to pray before we begin. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that even as we see and read um, about you and how faithful you have been, Lord, that we are amazed and we're thankful that we have this same God who provided to us Jesus who loves us and this solution that we can have 
um, to be united with you again. So Father, we thank you that even as we think about whose interests we're advancing, that you can speak clearly and truly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start us off with a story. Um, well, it's not really a story, but a conversation that I had earlier this week. I was chatting with someone um, about their lives and a situation that they were having. And it was a difficult time, a difficult story that this person was sharing. It was, in, in fact, quite um, a tragic story of how the person was going through real struggle. And this struggle involved the person losing their home, um, it getting burned down, and also because of that, as a result, having family members who passed away. Now, it was a difficult story. It was one where you could see actually the struggle of the person as, as the person recounted that story, the pain, the difficulty, the struggle of thinking, hey, you know, how can I find justice for what was happening? But yet at the same time thinking, where is God in all of this? And what is God doing? How do I make sense of God in this situation? Now, the question I have for all of us, and myself included, is what would we have done in that situation? And my first reaction as I looked inward is to, was really driven by a sense of self-preservation and self-interest, right? Immediately trying to think, hey, who is the culprit? What was the problem? Why wasn't this person brought to justice? What can I do to find justice? A sense of being incredibly angry at the situation, even though it wasn't me being there. Now, we go through different circumstances every day, right? And circumstances, circumstances that might not be particularly easy, or things that challenge our ideals and our comfort and security. What could they be? It could look like something as mundane as someone struggling in school, right, because they're being made fun of or being bullied. People struggling, perhaps, with job security in our current climate, where things are not so secure. Or for some of us, it could be coming to terms with relational issues, whether within our families, um, with our spouses, or for some of us, even struggling with the idea of marriage and what that means, and the idea that society places upon us that unless you're married, you're not fulfilled. And that struggle is real. For others of us, it could even be a sense of struggling within a familial relationships where there might be tensions or perhaps even abuse points. How we respond in each of these situations is often an apologetic of our worldview. Right? Our responses also betray whose interests we are really advancing in our lives, as you think about that. And the reality is this, right? That we are often self-interested. Just like the kids in the crash, we are often self-interested. Now, C.S. Lewis says this, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death and death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Give nothing back. Nothing that you, give back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself 
and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look to Christ. Look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Now what C.S. Lewis is saying here is finding a solution in ourselves will really get us nowhere. The reality is that in this world there's still sin and brokenness. We love imperfectly. And even in our self-interest, the way we express self-interest, we do that so imperfectly as well. And that contributes to brokenness in this world. Now think about it. Our self-interest every morning if we are driving, right, as you commute, your self-interest in not being late and cutting into someone else's queue, um, people who have been waiting for the last 10-15 minutes. Now whose self-interest is that serving? Now, that is the reality of our lives today. So what is the alternative? Now Paul in this chapter seems to be certain and sure of where he was headed. There's no regret or fear, as you can see in verse 11. Nothing that would show up that way. He was not afraid to die if he had done anything wrong. He did not seek to escape death. But if there was nothing in the charges against him, no one could give him up to them, and he appealed to Caesar. Now, Paul was not afraid even of Caesar, much less Festus, whom was speaking to him. Paul was clearly interested in advancing God's interests, and that's what we see in this passage. So let's see what God wants to remind us about advancing his interest today. I have three points for my sermon, and the first is knowing the cause of our desire to advance God's interests. And second, staying the cost of advancing God's interests. And lastly, bearing the cost of advancing God's interests. Now, if we just dive in and think about knowing the cause of our desire to advance God's interests, I want us to think about Paul. Now, Paul, as we all know, his transformation came on that road to Damascus. Right? Paul was walking there and suddenly a bright light shone on him and he found God, right? And he was blinded, he couldn't see, he found God. Now that's what we often just associate with that conversion story of Paul. But if we zoom out a little bit and we think about Paul as a person, now Paul was this bright chap, right? Full potential of a life ahead of him. He was sitting under the best teachers of that time, under Gamaliel. He was just this person who people would rock up and listen to him and say, wow, you know, such an inspirational speaker. Perhaps someone like a Simon or a Jacob, right? Where people say, wow, yeah, this is the person I want to hear. Now, that was Paul. That was who he is. Everywhere he wa- went, people were willing to listen to him. People wanted to see him and people feared him and responded to his call. Now, what happened when that changed? What happened when Paul met Jesus? It was a complete turnaround. From someone who was persecuting, from someone who people listened to, Paul became someone who was persecuted. And he almost became the one who, every time he opened his mouth, either an uprising would happen, or people would start stoning him. That was the that was the immense impact that Christ's salvation actually had on Paul. 
Was that something easy? Was that something that was just nice and straightforward for him? Certainly it wasn't. It required something deeper, required a change of his heart, a transformation of his heart where he saw the need for Christ and Christ worked in it. Now, what did God replace that transformed heart with? God placed in Paul the call to reach the Gentiles. And really, to prove that God was ahead of the game, he already told that to Ananias when he sent Ananias to meet Paul um, after Paul was blinded. And that we see in chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go for Paul, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Uh, out of his transformation by the gospel came a heart for Paul to want to advance God's interests. If you remember a sermon several weeks back in Acts 20, Paul had gone to Jerusalem despite being told by the Spirit that there would be suffering and danger. Now if we look at Acts 20, 22-24, what does it say? It says this, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that prison, imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. And he does not account his life of any value or precious to himself, if only he may finish his course in ministry and receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And really, that is where Paul went. Paul went to Jerusalem. He got imprisoned. He got shipped to Caesarea. And there he was awaiting, awaiting. And he wasn't even sure what he was waiting for at that point. He was brought there, and Felix, the governor at that time, just threw him in prison, wanting to please the Jews, gain favor, and also perhaps wanting to even milk Paul of some monies, as you can see in the end of the previous chapter. Now, that was the situation that Paul was in. Now, Festus was the new governor who came into town, as we read, as um, Joe had read for us. And he was trying to figure things out when the Jews came and wanted to restart their case against Paul. They asked Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem because they wanted to ambush him. But Festus said, no, he wanted to hear Paul in Caesarea. When he saw how upset the Jews were with Paul, he asked, he wanted to do them a favor by trying to persuade Paul to go back to Jerusalem. But Paul refused and asked for an appeal from Caesar. We can look at some of the verses there. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, in verse 8, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. 10 to 11, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong. As you yourselves know very well, I'm, if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to those charges, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now in this chapter, Paul put up a, a strong appeal for his life. He was defending his life. He was arguing that he did not deserve death. If this were the only text that we had about Paul, if this were the only chapter that described Paul, one would actually, I might even mistake him as someone who was very self-righteous, legalistic, and full of himself, right? Saying that, oh, I've not done anything wrong at all. I'm, I'm just this great person. Yeah, you cannot touch me. 
But that was far from the truth, isn't it? As we saw, Paul was someone who was not scared to run towards danger, to go towards difficulty and suffering when the Holy Spirit called for it. So, we see Paul's movement, whether toward or away from danger, one that was not driven by self-interest, but really by the advancement of God's Word. Um, And we see what had changed for him was actually what was in Acts 23, verse 11. And we see again from that point, the Lord stood by him and told Paul, take courage as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul had received this new mandate that asked for him to go to Rome after he had gone to Jerusalem. And that is where he was headed. And he would defend his life, he would make sure that he would get there. And he knew that God would back him there. Now the gospel had an impact on Paul's life, transforming his heart. But more than that, it placed a deep desire in him to advance God's interests, Christ's interests. What does that look for us? What does that look like for us today? I want to just propose to us that firstly, advancing God's interests isn't just for the super spiritual, right? It's not for the person who is like an apostle like Paul or someone who has... Yeah, great gifts of all sorts. But really, advancing God's interest is for anyone who has received the gospel. It overflows out of that love and gratitude that we have for God's love. And that desire that we have um, is really now in advancing God's interest because He is the only one who can truly know us and flourish us. Now secondly, have we truly emptied ourselves of our credentials and the people that we seek approval from as we live this life? Is our turn to Christianity simply a means for getting on better in this life with God's help? Right? Or is it indeed tuned at the heart by a love for Christ at the grace of the gospel? Do concerns about who we are, our credentials, how good we are, or the people that we fear, the people in authority, the people in power, still cloud our decisions that we make today. How do we think about our circumstances around us? When things do not turn out well, what is our reflex? What is the immediate thing that we do? Do we shape our responses on the basis of our self-interest and our well-being? Do we think that if this doesn't work out well for me, no, I'm going to pass it up. Or do we pass these things through the lens of what does it mean for advancing God's interests, for witnessing to His goodness and glory and act on them accordingly? As we ponder about this, we can think about the next point that I want to share, staying the course of advancing God's interests. Now, while Paul was very clear of his call and he knew which way to turn, he was also very rested in God's ability to bring that call to fruition. Paul had perhaps few data points as he was living that out, right? He was going forward and just following God along. But he knew from past history, he knew from where God was and where God had brought him that God was 
faithful and there was a fidelity in his faithfulness that he could trust and be committed on. So when God made it clear to Paul that Rome was a place for him to go, Paul just held on, trusting in God's sovereignty. And let's see how God delivers. Right? Paul was in prison already for two years without any hope of getting out. Now, nobody would have known that he was there if Felix didn't open his mouth, if the Jews didn't go pick him or, or talk about him. Festus would have just got into his new job and he would have rotted in prison as a political prisoner of no repute and no consequence. But that was not the case. God sent the Jews to go talk to Festus about him. Now, when Festus refused to bring Paul to Jerusalem, it really saved his life because we know that the Jews were plotting to kill Paul or ambush him in that way. And yet, when Jews were invited to Caesarea by Festus to go and judge or go and um, put Paul on trial, they did so. And when that happened, it gave Paul the opportunity to say that he would appeal to Caesar. And that was pivotal. And that is when you see the engine getting started for Paul to move forward to go to Rome. Do we feel like sometimes for us, right, the truth is that we, we do have God's hand of protection. Even though the direction may not always be clear from our vantage point, we might be in the prisons that Paul was in, right, prisons, or light years away from where we think God is calling us. But we can be rest assured that in His sovereignty, God will get us to the Jerusalems and the Romes that He has called us toward. We are often constrained by our own limitations and how we see God. And we cannot see how God really works in a different realm, a different set of powers. Now, even as we study the text today, isn't it incredible to see how God has weaved together so intricately all the different details, the lives, the thoughts, imaginations of different people and their decisions, and to bring all of that together so that God's plan can come to pass. Here's an illustration I just want to use to put that into context. So I don't know how many of you, so this might betray my age, okay, but um, in our time, there was this Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yeah, I don't know whether you have read it before. And I think it's making a bit of a comeback. But these Choose Your Own Adventure books are little storybooks where you read a section and then there's a choice, right? Um, if you want to fight the monster, go to page what? If you choose to run away, go to page, another page. So that's really fun. And I think um, that's one of the things that I've managed to bond with my, my children with. I won't say which one. Um, but, but that's one of the things that we, we really enjoyed. And, and I think... I think during the lockdown period, um, when we had not that much to do, one of the things that we, we tried to do was to write these stories ourselves. Right? Of course, my kids did it so much better than me. They have a wonderful imagination. They're like writing stories pages and pages and like flipping here and there. So when I tried my hand at it, um, I was writing a story, a few sections, and before I knew it, I just wanted the character to die. Right? <laughs> Go to page five, die. Go to page seven, die. My, my, my mind just couldn't comprehend or just couldn't like put together that complexity of all the different ifs and buts that that book could put in place. Now that's tough, right? And if you think it's just me, just because I'm not so smart, 
And that's probably true. But, 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 but think about Token, right? J.R. Token. And I'm sure you've heard of that, right? His epic work of the Lord of the Rings. How long did Token take to write that book? Now, it wasn't a one-year affair, right? Not two years, not five years. Hopefully, my research is correct, but it's 12 years, right? Token took 12 years to write that book. And of course, he didn't just write the book, right? He, he wrote, he wrote the, the whole manuscript up. He made up languages for the people, for, for the characters. He drew up maps of Middle-earth, and he created a reality from his imagination. But it took him all of 12 years. Now, God didn't just create the earth. He authored our lives, but he didn't just leave it to be. Now, Jesus continues today to be at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. He is active and alive in our lives today. Now, unlike us or me, who runs out of ideas right, within five pages of what to do next, or take a decade to create a snapshot of a world, right? just that snapshot, that storyline, that one storyline, God does all of this in real time. And He's even able to rescue us from ourselves at that. So knowing that we have a God who's so omniscient and sovereign and can provide our needs for our flourishing, it really ought to help us to trust in the fidelity of God's character and how He will work through human laws, institutions and rulers so that we can point to His glory. Now how does that make you consider how we can make decisions differently in our lives? Now consider... How when a friend lets you down, how can we go to the gospel to seek strength for forgiveness and love for a person who is as broken as we are? Or to be able to lay our stresses and our concerns of potentially losing a job, to know that God has all these different potential endings for our lives and more crafted out in His hand and He knows exactly which one will flourish us and glorify Him the most. So consider that. Consider our God, His sovereignty, and how that helps us to stay on course in advancing God's interest. Now move to my final point, bearing the cost of advancing God's interest. Even as we consider Paul, we know that advancing the interest of the gospel came at great cost for him. There was an intentionality in which he approached living for the gospel as well as the injustice that he experienced. I think in Paul's case, it was a little bit more traumatizing, right? a bit more difficult. You know why? Because he was one of those who were persecuting the others previously. He knew exactly what methods, what questions, what torture, what all the things that would be done upon him if he ever got into the hands of these guys. It was not easy. Now, although we know that injustice plagued Paul, we also knew that he did not have a martyr's complex. He wasn't out there to say, hey, let me die, I'm going to run towards suffering and I'm going to embrace it and that's what I'm going to do. That wasn't Paul. He wasn't diving headlong into any opportunity to suffer. But as we have discussed earlier, he was seeking to advance God's interest. 
At every turn, he was seeking the thing that God wanted for him, the thing that pointed most to God's glory, the thing that made God the most visible. Now, and as he does that, he knows, he does it with a pure knowledge that one of the byproducts could possibly be injustice or suffering of some sort. In this chapter, we see that, even in this short chapter, we see the intense injustice that Paul went through. There's at least five instances of recorded injustice, right? First, the Jews who were supposed to be guardians of the Jewish law, what did they do? They used the expertise of the law to hatch a plan to kill Paul, right? They tried their best to execute it. They lied to Festus to try to get their ambush to work, to say, hey, you know, come, get Paul to Jerusalem while I'm there waiting to want to kill Paul. Now, they even tried to manipulate the law. They came up with good, many, and serious charges against Paul, but they could not prove any of them. Now, Festus, Festus was new to the job, and though at first he might be trying to exert his authority on the Jews, when he saw how serious the Jews were, he kind of fell back and said, hey, you know, maybe I should just go their way instead and do what they wanted. So instead of asking them um, to just let Paul go because he knew that there was nothing wrong, he actually invited and asked Paul, hey, do you want to go to Jerusalem to be tried there? Of course, Paul said, no. Now, throughout this whole process of questioning, even asking Agrippa for help, so Agrippa was the, the king, the Jewish um, puppet king at that point, right, um, to question Paul, it seemed as though Festus had nothing to charge Paul with. But instead of releasing him, he cemented his appeal and set him on the road to Rome. Now, despite the many injustices, Paul stood firm and continued to seek to do what God desired and wanted him to do, to go to Rome. So he argued in verse 8 that he didn't do anything at all um, that was wrong. He kept his integrity and he did not retaliate or manipulate the law or even cause an uprising to come to his own defense. If you look at verse 10 and 11, it says, again, I think we've read this verse a couple of times, he does not seek to escape death. If there's no charge against him, he appeals to Caesar. So what gave Paul this strength to go through with injustice? In other parts of his epistles, and in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The grace in the gospel by which He stands, the knowledge of the suffering that produces endurance, character, and ultimately hope. And that hope for the ultimate unity with Christ. Right? These were the things that were holding Paul up and getting him on um, to what God wanted him to do. Now, as we think about these injustices, that Paul was going through, does it bring to mind, does it remind us of another trial that we might be familiar with? One that happened a couple of 
a number of years back in history. One that was also within the Roman courts with a Roman governor who was also unsure of whether to charge the person or not. And that's Jesus, right? Jesus went through a mock trial. There were fabricated witnesses. There were charges that could not be proved. Now, despite all the injustices, unlike Paul, he didn't say, you cannot come and get me. You cannot come and charge me. Jesus Christ, when he was charged with things that he did not do, he went, he went forward and gave himself up for us. Despite all the injustice he came through for the sake of his father to advance God's kingdom, he chose to die. Jesus' appeal was not to Caesar, but it was to his father, and not one for justice or saving, but one of injustice. It was an appeal for the righteous father to save and forgive and unrighteous people. Imagine that. Jesus called on his Father to forgive us for we did not know what we did. And because of his death and resurrection, that is possible. Jesus gave up his right to advance his own interests, submitted to the will of the Father because he trusted that the Father's will will be the best for him. Because of that, we could be saved and we are rescued today for his purpose the purpose to do his will and to advance Christ's interests to continue to witness to the grace of his gospel and to the glory of his name so how should we respond now for those of us among for those among us who have not yet known Christ or are seeking to know Christ you might be wondering at the relevance of today's word for you i just want to share this quickly with you now, all of us have unmet longings, desires that stem out of who we were made to be. And these things may be good things. For example, you want a desire for control, you want a desire for comfort, for approval. And in order to gain these things, we have things that we idolize, like money, our careers, or even sex or marriage. And we think that these things will help us to secure these longings and desires. Now, in our culture today, there's the idol of self as well, where we protect our individualism, where we think that our self-interest above all should be the thing that comes through. Now, the problem with each of these things is that they don't last. We lose our money, we lose our career, our jobs. We worry about our partners, our marriages, and our relationships. And the reality is that as we advance our self-interest to meet these unmet desires, they will not last and they're not possible because of sin and brokenness that still exists in this world. And these things will ultimately disappoint. And that brings us to the fact of the work of Christ on the cross that we just talked about, the injustice of his death, the fulfilling of his father's will and the advancing of interest for his father. Now that has given us an opportunity to meet our desires through advancing Christ's interests. And I urge all of you to think about that and to consider that and pray. And if you want to talk to 
any of our leaders to understand more, to find out more about this Christ who died for us so wonderfully. Please, please come and be prayed for. Now for those of us who are Christians, there are three things that I think we can respond with. The first is to express gospel living as part of our gospel response. That's something that we've talked about, right, in the Gospel Emphasis um, series, the gospel response. 1 Peter 4, 10-11 says, As each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, whoever serves, do it with the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. As you see in much of Acts, the idea of advancing God's interests is really living towards witnessing to the gospel and pointing to God's glory. There are passages, many passages that speak about what we are saved for and saved into. And they point to living out the gospel in being active in witnessing about Christ, the way that we live and do good to others. But to remember that all of this is really enabled by Christ and the gospel, not in our own strength. But there's certainly a call for us to express gospel living. Now, apart from God's power, nothing can be done. And really, if not for His glory, nothing should be done. This can be expressed in how we care for each other in the community, how we share vulnerably and openly of how God is working in our lives. Apart from the church community, there's also the unchurched, the people who are not in the faith, who do not know Christ. We spend a large number of hours in our lives amongst them. How we work, how we live our lives, how we're called to redeem work to reflect God and to point others to Him. This could mean us working with integrity, being intentional about being diligent and careful about the needs of others, while being explicit about what these behaviours are motivated by. The second is to enjoy living life under His sovereignty. We should exude joy and freedom in the way that we live because of salvation in the gospel, because we know we've been saved for a purpose. And we can pray in faith, and we can see His sovereignty, and we can freely pray knowing that God's will will ultimately be done. Finally, we should expect injustice and suffering as we advance the interests of God. These are results of sin and brokenness and also Satan in the spiritual realm that want to reclaim his state. What does it mean for us then to live with an expectation of injustice and suffering? It means that we keep our hope in what is to come, not in the existential. It means that we live, keep living in integrity despite feeling wronged and not taking things into our own hands, reacting in gossip or anger or dishing out a version of injustice to others. It means that we are rooted in the gospel, knowing that we've already been saved by grace. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Now to close, I just want to bring us back to that story of the person who was going through that injustice, that difficulty in their life. So I continued to speak with that person about that very dark season of their life. I was very, very amazed to hear the response of the person, what the person termed as a Jobian experience. As the person recovered from it, there was a sense of seeing healing in God. The thing that struck me most that the person was saying was that the person realized that 
the suffering was a grace. It was a grace. Can you imagine that? A grace of God that allowed the person to come to know and experience God more deeply and to grow in confidence of His love and His care. It was incredibly humbling for me to hear that and to see that deep conviction in that person as they said that. Now, instead of being self-interested, having a self-advancing response of wanting to see justice and benefit meted out for those who were wrong, there was a sense of quiet restedness and joy. And a sense of a person wanting to advance God's interest, pointing to the glory of God. As we grow to know God in faith through grace, our desire to, know, to want to know Him and to advance His interest really flows out of that relationship that we now have with Him. In allowing us to partner with Him in advancing His interest, God is really giving us a glimpse of how He can and He will restore this world from brokenness to wholeness and a people from death into life. Now, what I want us to remember, church, is that God knows us better than we can ever know ourselves. And therefore, what does that mean? He can love us better then we can ever love ourselves. And when we advance God's interest, we can trust that God's interest in us is way more beneficial for us than our self-interest can ever be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us so much more than we can ever love ourselves. Father, I pray that even as we live this life, that we'll allow that interest in you, Lord, advancing the interest of yours to take precedence over our self-interest, to know that that is way more beneficial for us and that we can point to your glory in our lives. So, Father, we thank you and ask that you be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.